Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. We are talking about Connie Willis's book, The Doomsday Book, and we're going to go around and talk about topics that you found to be of interest that were politically relevant, socially relevant. What do we have? Who wants to go first? Go ahead. Um, on page 74. 74? It's when um, Dunworthy is on the phone with one of the bell ringers when he was trying to get a hold of his assistant. When he was trying what? Trying to get a hold of his assistant. Oh, okay. Um, but one of the bell ringers from the U.S. picks up instead. And um, the bell ringer is complaining because... They're stuck in the quarantine. Okay. Um, so where do we start reading? About halfway down the page. What's the first phrase? So we know explain. where to... Explain. Okay, explain. All right. Explain. Perhaps you'd like to explain it to me, too. I'm not used to having my civil liberties taken away like this. In America, nobody would dream of telling you where you can or can't go. And over 30 million Americans died during the pandemic as a result of that sort of thinking. I assure you, madam, that the quarantine is solely for your protection and that all of your concert dates will be more than willing to be scheduled. In the meantime, Phelo uh, is delighted to have you as our guest. I am looking forward to meeting you in person. Your reputation precedes you. Um, and it goes on. But I thought that passage was interesting because it shows that we cling on to our idea of freedom, even to the point that, like, you want freedom more than you want safety, to some extent. Like, Americans try, um, she's upset because her civil liberties are taken away and fails to recognize that the reason they're taken away is for safety. Fascinating. It's a good topic, and it's a good thing. When you first read it, I said, why in the world did she pick that passage? Like, what in the world relevance does that have to major political stuff? And you did it. You found a relatively obscure aspect of the novel, and you raised it into a big issue, which is really true. When major things happen, the dominant thoughts that people have in their minds are these petty issues. And it's all throughout this book, and it's so great. And this is a perfect example for it. You have a quarantine. A life-threatening disease has struck a major city. The quarantine is there. The police are there. Everything's blocked off. The medical facilities are being rallied. And what is the thing that's on people's mind? Uh, and it was the issue of whether they were going to be able to um, perf- you know, have their concerts, whether they were going to perform their concerts, meaning they want their life to go on as normal. And this is interfering with life as normal. Death is going to interfere with life as normal too, but they don't get it. And that's so true. Remember what we were talking about last week with respect to Connie Willis is saying, the CDC plans, the national government plans, the idea that when the national government has already plans, all the laws have already been written, to if there is a terrorist attack or if there's a disease outbreak that is threatening, such as a smallpox outbreak or some type of terrorist virus, the plans are already in works, the laws are already signed, sealed, and delivered, the administrative orders are already done to slap down basically a martial law 
a quarantine on areas all over. You won't be able to go to the grocery store. You won't be able to leave your house. You won't be able to do anything. Now, the whole idea would be to protect your life so that you don't die of this major disease and don't spread it. But you know people are going to be outraged. What do you mean? What am I supposed to do to get milk? How am I supposed to get milk? Johnny wants milk. How am I supposed to, what am I supposed to put in his cereal? And that's the dominant issue that will happen. And that's what, the, that's what the conversation will be about. And politicians who are trying to manage the disaster are going to be literally pestered all over the place with how to put milk in Johnny's cereal when in fact they're trying to save everybody's life. A very interesting, complex issue. How do you deal with a population in terms of getting the overall population to a better state given that the, exact, the disaster that occurred? when in fact the population is going to be kicking and screaming back at you. Now, um, this issue, if you don't mind me mentioning, that this issue has recurred in this book throughout. Let me bring up another example in the of the book of this issue. But this time, let's go back in time to where Kivrin, the protagonist, actually went back in time. And it was around Christmas time in the Oxford area of Britain and the husband of the family unit had left and said don't invite anyone here keep quiet and just stay till I come back because the plague was spreading all over the place and you remember the grandmother and some of the others were so upset that they weren't going to have a proper Christmas and how could they not have a proper Christmas without the proper people being brought in? And she ended up violating the, ba the basic rules that the husband had laid down, which was have no interactions with anyone else. He was trying to protect their lives. And she evaded the proper rules. She sent somebody out, Galwin out to, to get uh, other people to make connections. And in fact, other people came in and they brought in with them foods, uh, they brought in with them people, they brought in with them, and they had a Merry Christmas, and they left a, a day or two after that, after leaving not only the good foods and everything else, but also the plague. And everybody ended up dying. Do you get the idea? So this happens all the time. People try to circumvent the defensive rules that people try to establish in order to protect the unit. So whenever you have a national type of emergency at all times, you always have two things conflicting. You have the normal daily events that people have, and they tried to keep those things going, despite whatever big emergency may have occurred. And then you have the national efforts to try to contain everything. The roadblock the national efforts run into is, how do you stop the micro-decisions from going on that normally go on during a, a normal day? How do you stop those from continuing, given their habitual nature? The only resort that national situations often have is to send the police out and put a gun next to people's head and say if you walk out of your house you're going to be shot that's the nature of martial law it's hard to make those decisions it's a very interesting conflict the conflict between getting the society to a better outcome given the need to make on a personal psychological level to make normal uh, micro decisions that are the same as what you made yesterday before the crisis great example we have time for one more Go ahead, someone else, pick a, pick a passenger, be brave. We only have a few more minutes, so come on.
Who, who, remember I asked you to make a mark, to make a passage. If I ask you to make a passage, really make a passage, meaning make a mark in your book. I got one mark. You got one? I don't know if we have time to discuss it. Go ahead. It's kind of similar. By the way, and that means everybody has to do it. If I say mark a passage, and that means everybody, I'm going to eventually have to just pick you and say, what is your passage? And if you don't have a passage, it puts you on the spot. So make sure you have some passage from each book that you want to talk about. Go ahead. Uh, this passage deals with the dangers of free speech. Why don't you tell us the page? On page 291. 291. 291. At the very bottom. Okay, good. There were three picketers outside an Indian grocer's and a half dozen more outside Brasno's with a large banner they were holding between them that read, Time travel is a health threat. He recognized the young woman on the end as one of the medics from the ambulance. Heating systems of the EC and time travel. During the pandemic, it had been the American germ warfare program and air conditioning. Back in the Middle Ages, they had blamed Satan and the appearance of comets for their epidemics. Doubtless on the fact that the virus had originated in South Carolina was revealed, the Confederacy or Southern Fried Chicken would be blamed. They went in the gate to the porter's desk. The Christmas tree was sitting on one end of it. The urge, the angel perched atop it. I have a student from Shrewsbury meeting me to set up some communications equipment, he told the porter. We'll need to be let into the laboratory. The laboratory is restricted, sir, the porter said. Restricted? Yes, sir. It's been locked and no one's allowed in. Okay. So what do you see here? What I see here is that uh, the free speech as exercised by the protesters has led, and that's it's not explained here yet, but when, later when he talks to Gilchrist, it's explained that the laboratory has been cut off because of fears generated by that exercise of free speech. Everyone Interesting. with their signs have led to a, a, a change in policy that is actually not... Uh, going to be helpful in the long run because it's putting Kibrin in danger. It's endangering someone because of fears that were expressed through uh, unnecessary free speech. That's interesting. So really what you're saying is that when crises happen, the population, segments within the population gets, gets activated, such as protesters. And when protesters get activated, they cause reactions in governmental bureaucratic systems. And when those reactions occur, that often stops the people who are involved in crucial elements from doing their work. Meaning, the government isn't always so capable, so competent, as to be able to selectively clamp down on certain things. So if the populace is concerned about time travel, in this case, what did they do is they slap a lock on the laboratory that is involved with the time travel. So the scientists who are involved in the thing in the first place are locked out. Very interesting. The idea that popular protests can cause collateral damage and that if a crisis occurs, the very people who may be involved in trying to sort it out may be not allowed to do what they need to do in the sorting of it out. That's a very interesting idea, the very idea of collateral damage and thus the further ineptitude of the bureaucracy and, and the governmental actions can be accented, amplified by a response to public problems. 
protest problems, other things that are sort of not related. It's very interesting. You, this is this goes back to the issue of whether you can always expect competency in the face of a crisis. What did we learn from Hurricane Katrina? The hurricane hit. Not only was FEMA unprepared, but the, the U.S. governmental agency that was supposed to handle the crisis, not only was that unprepared, <coughs> but that when the hurricane hit, the governmental systems in New Orleans, in Louisiana, and the federal government that were in those areas, they started to fall apart. And people started to make decisions which conflicted with the actual needs that were being addressed in the hurricane aftermath. So decisions were made to affect other things that affected other things, and you got collateral damage, and you get sort of a spiral into a whirlpool of ineptitude and incompetence. Actually, there was some of that that went on during the BP oil spill. We don't have time to go into it now, but if you remember when the BP oil spill happened, when the well in the Gulf blew out, there was first ineptitude in the explosion in the first place that started the thing. But then there was responses that occurred afterward. And the responses were causing protests, were causing a reaction from the government, which caused sometimes more ineptitude to occur. Um, there were many situations when boats that should have been used for uh, the siphoning off of the oil on the surface were being sent to the area, but they were in the dock. Uh, they were sent to the area prematurely before everything could be worked out because public responding to act. But when they got to the area, they didn't know what to do, so they just sort of stayed in the docks. All types of problems like that do occur. Ineptitude coming out of the crisis, meaning the governmental apparatus itself becomes incompetent because of the crisis. Very interesting idea. Okay, so we're going to be talking about this in response to the issues that you found, we had two examples of issues that were brought up. Those were both good issues. Did you see how we tied them into something current that happened recently? It was a thing that history, history repeats itself. And uh, you could see um, through the use of time travel, uh, the juxtapositioning of uh, the, the different things happening. Uh, at the same time, you could see that the um, people back in uh, the, the 1350s, uh, they were reacting pretty much the same way as the people in, in present day 2054. Um, uh, they all made made blames and accusations as to what was causing the diseases. They all did some type of quarantining. Um, the quarantine in uh, the present day was done by the government, while the uh, quarantine in, um, in the 1350s was uh, pretty much just different people's uh, Ideas. They, they. It wasn't something that was uh, collectively uh, thought of. They just, like, they, they were isolated from each other and, and run away from the different diseases. We I mean, run away from the diseases. That's pretty much what it's about. Hmm. Isaiah, you raised some very interesting points about uh, generational thing. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. Now, um, I'd like to extend that. When you say they did the same thing over and over again, exactly who are you talking about? The society. The society. Which society? Uh, both societies. Um, the society in the 1350s and the society in 2054. So the society in 2000... Okay, and, and, and which is the other one? 
1350s. 1350s. Okay. So, give me an example of something they did similar, the same thing, in the 1350s as compared with the, the later society. Um, they both uh, made accusations as to what was going on with the disease before they even knew what was going, what was actually happening. They they made wow accusations. Um, like what? Give me an, give me an example. In uh, the present day, uh, 2054, they they said that it was um, time travel that caused the, the, the disease, the outbreak, and in. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, um, 1300s, they said that it could be because of an adulterous woman or um, some priest. That was interesting. That's a very good point. So they were basing it on superstition. And superstition is any unfounded belief. Any unfounded belief. So they were basing it on superstition with respect to time travel causing the problem. And they were also blaming it on superstition with regard to back in the in the Middle Ages whether it was an adulteress that was causing it. So, go ahead, Tyler. I think another part of it was that some people didn't want to take responsibility for their actions. Um, Was it Mr. Gilchrist, who was in charge of the drop in 2054? Um, When Baudry first got sick, he was accusing Dunwoody? of, um, you know, not, of his technicians not having all of their vaccinations, and he was trying to place the blame on someone else, rather than admitting that he hadn't taken the proper precautions. And um, the same thing happened with Lady Emane in the 1300s, when um, it was discovered that the plague was coming because of the priest that she sent for, she was saying it's because of adultery, it's because the children are too loud, it's because, you know, people aren't being responsible, and she was refusing to take responsibility. Interesting. This is very similar to the other comment, um, where people do things based on superstition, but now you're also saying that people, when they do things, uh, they refuse to take responsibility for the mistakes that they made. In a sense, they're connected, because the Superstition aspect is blaming it on something, in a sense, to remove responsibility from oneself. And here you're saying that in actual fact, when it came down to personal actions that they did, they would always blame it on something else. That's actually quite a very generic generic problem. When you look at the society at large here, how would you... Say something. What would give me an example of something that you'd say happens in our world that people do things, but then blame it on something else? Give me an example, of just looking at the news or something that you see where people do things, but then blame it on something other than themselves. I think global warming is a good example. A lot of the uh, major uh, oil people and so on have a tendency to support uh, various research that indicates there's just a natural warming process because it would... A natural what process? A national warming process on the earth, the fact that maybe it's getting warmer just because that's the way the cycles work, uh, instead of the fact that their own actions may be contributing. You're bringing up the issue of global warming. Indeed. That's a really good point. You know, a good way to see debunking global warming stuff 
is uh, to go to drudgereport.com. Matt Drudge and see what he's doing. Uh, conservatives have their day in there and they're constantly accenting stories that are... Matt Drudge is constantly acting, accenting stories that downplay the issue of, of global warming. You know, if things keep going the way they are going, the only way everybody will agree that global warming is a problem is when nobody's alive to to be agreeing about it anymore. Everybody's all dead. Um, how many people saw Artificial Intelligence, AI, by Spielberg? A couple of you? You know, it's one of the best movies ever. Best science fiction movies, best movies ever. It's a powerful movie. I didn't take my son to watch it because it was uh, a little bit too emotional with regard to some childhood issues. Uh, there's a android kid that's that abandoned. That Pardon me? Is that the one with the little blonde boy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the same kid, I believe, who, who played in Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great actor. I mean, spectacular actor. Anyway, but this childhood abandonment issues was a little bit too strong for when it came out. I didn't want to get my son to, to, to uh, see the movie, but it's one of the most powerful movies that you can imagine. But in the end of the movie... The humanity's gone, and the only survivors are the androids, the robots that had evolved, and they had a very advanced civilization. They were trying to study humanity, just like we try to study ancient civilizations by going by digging things up and looking at their buildings and everything like that. And they came across this little boy, which is a boy android that had been frozen uh, for a huge amount of time in a state that they were able to resurrect and they were able to bring him back. And so they had a early android that they were able to get, you know, recording from basic information from what it was like to live among live humans. And in that situation, you saw how humanity had declined and then eventually how it had disappeared. And throughout it all, there was never a recognition that they had done anything wrong. It was always something that happened. Something was responsible for it. Now, sometimes I end up uh, going to Africa, and so I run into a lot of people in Africa where witchcraft is considered a very common explanation for how something, why something goes wrong. A good friend of mine was uh, a coach for a soccer team in Africa, and he was a really good coach. And his team was doing well until they fired him. And I said, they fired you. <laughs> How could they fire you? You're winning. You got the team into the Super League. And they said they hired somebody else. They hired another coach? How could they hire another coach? He said, no, they didn't hire another coach. Well, then who'd they hire? They hired a witch doctor. I say, I said that they did what? They hired they hired a witch doctor instead of, and they fired the coach? They said, well, they had a certain amount of money, so they'd rather put it in a witch doctor than a coach. I said, well, you had a track record. And he said, let's not go there. They hired a witch doctor. Most of the soccer teams coming out of South America have witch doctors. <laughs> when you see the Brazilian team or the Argentinian team, a good percentage of the time somebody hired a witch doctor. Um, so uh, all, a lot of the African teams have witch doctors, and that was a situation where they actually fired the coach in order to keep the witch doctor going. So, I mean, I run into situations like that uh, all the time. And... I've actually, you know, in in uh, in Europe, the, many of the teams have astrologers. <laughs> so, so in the European teams, they have astrologers. So, um, superstition is really quite strong in 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 ways of 
blaming other things or blaming other people. And how how often have you seen a situation where somebody in your family unit or friendship network will do something wrong and they will blame it on something happened. Some event, they will blame it on circumstances or an event, but they will not say, I really screwed up. It was totally me. That's the rare exception, right? So what you're really seeing here is a general phenomenon of society, of people taking what's what's happening and passing the book but it having and having devastating consequences but what you also see from Kevin's experience with Kevin the protagonist in this in this novel is how what is it how easy is it to break through those procedures to break through those issues it's almost impossible isn't it no matter what she said at the end People were still doing what they were doing. They ended up still dying of the plague. No matter what was being said on the more modern side, ended up still having people having problems. They had to, eventually when they had to go to rescue Kevin, they had to break the law. They had to break the regulations. They had to get around things in order to circumvent these things. So, um, we touched it with global warming. What's another example that you see where people say they can't do something because of... Government. What's that? Government. Government. What about government? Um, when a new administration comes in, especially if it switches parties, a lot of times they'll say that the reason, uh, like, all the problems they're having that they have to solve is because of the last administration. Um, especially when people get really upset about, you know, effects from things that changed a few years back, but are just now becoming obvious. Yeah, um, blaming things on past administrations, that's a good thing. You know, I might extend what you've just said to the current campaign. Now, this is very interesting, because I've never seen a campaign like this that in my life. And so you're just beginning your voting experience, I mean, most of you are around 18, 19 years old, you're beginning your voting experience in a situation that really is almost unprecedented. It sort of had a similar situation near the Depression and also Civil War, when we were going through the Civil War, but rarely has we experienced in modern times a situation where this society is so dysfunctional and so polarized. Ten years ago, everything was fine. Everything was going great. Budget was getting balanced, everything was fine, people had their disagreements, but it was okay. This was the place to be. Ten years ago, that was a blink of an eye, folks. Today, the country is fundamentally functionally dis, uh, uh, dysfunctional. We're going into an election now where people are saying, vote like your life depended on it. You see the emphasis people are saying for this midterm election? The reality is, all the intelligent commentators are basically all agreed. It doesn't matter what happens in this election. It's the politicians, when they do surveys, they're doing lots of surveys. Basically, the, the vast majority of the American public is so fed up because they know politicians are not the answer. It doesn't matter who you vote for. There's something fundamentally wrong. Nobody really has an answer for what the answer is. No one really knows how to fix it. But everyone's saying, oh, it was the earlier Bush regime, it was this, it was the polarization, the Republicans are doing this, they're talking about it, they're passing the buck. The reality is, the country's become simply dysfunctional. And it's gotten to the point where they don't know how to fix it. 
and every side of it is blaming somebody else for it. But the reality is, it's a, it's a collective problem. It's a fundamental structural issue. And we're getting to the point where you're actually thinking that democracy itself, in this context, is dysfunctional. That the actual process of democratic thinking, the actual process of voting, may be dysfunctional. Maybe it won't work. And what is the possible outcomes? Well, the possible outcomes is a complete collapse of the American economy. That is what we're facing. Now, um, what does a complete collapse mean? That means a complete collapse of the dollar, a complete collapse of the investment. This is what people are actually talking about. We're talking about a long possible period of deflation, a long possible period of, of, of wages dropping, of jobs dropping, a long depressionary period that goes on for a very long period of time. That's what people are talking about, and then they're talking about um, passing the buck on who to do it. How do you actually tactically get out of situations like this? In the past, governments have gotten out of situations like this when there's been a crisis. For example, World War II solved the depression problem. What they did was they took huge amounts of, of, of cash, and they just started spending it. Spending it, spending it, spending it. And the country didn't mind, and all the opposition went away for this deficit spending because we were attacked. And because of the attack, people said, look, we're, like, we're, we're fighting for our survival right now, so all the issues of whether that's a good thing or a bad thing go away. We'll solve that afterwards. But what that is, that huge amount of public spending, huge amount of public spending, uh, caused all these jobs to come up. The economy grew, it expanded, everything went... Uh, in a positive direction, and then after the war, you had this huge economy and everything sort of leveled out. Well, that may be a solution now, but it's politically unpalatable. So, Paul Krugman, who's been arguing for this in the New York Times for the longest time, he's saying basically the Republicans are at fault for polarizing the nation, and that now we're having a situation in which the answer is being ridiculed by the Tea Party members and everybody else, but that is the only answer. But the reality is Paul Krugman's wrong as well. The only reason his solution worked in the last time was because we were attacked, Pearl Harbor. We entered the war, and had that not occurred, that solution would not have occurred either, <laughs> meaning there is a political context to the whole thing as well. So the question of passing the buck with regard to um, uh, problems that we're facing, even her, you know, Herculean problems that we're facing, is very fundamental. And one of the things that you do get in the Doomsday Book is what brings about Doomsday largely is problems that are inescapable on the, on the level of personal initiative, on the level of personal problems, and the passing of the buck. And that fundamentally, that we may be more susceptible as a species to structural conditions in our society than we understand. That means it may be not so much that we are capable of doing everything, but that maybe we're capable of doing things within the correct, properly structured environment. Meaning we may be a little bit more like rats in a maze. We can sort of figure our way out of the maze, but we have to have a maze. And if the maze is dysfunctional, if the structure is dysfunctional, we may not be in control of our own destiny. And that's the real type of problem. And then who do you blame it on? Well, you don't see anybody actually explaining the complexities of this situation. You see politicians saying, blame it on the Democrats, Obamacare. You see 
the Democrats saying, blame it on the Republicans. Bush incompetence. Do you get the idea? And the polarization. Everyone's blaming it on this, blaming it on that. The reality is there's fundamental dysfunctionality that may that may potentially bring the government to the the country to to the edge, to the very edge of the abyss. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not predicting what's going to happen. I'm just saying that these are the potentials that are being talked about by the leading economists. No longer is this fringe talk. Now they're really talking about, you know, we may be looking at the abyss. It's a very interesting, that, that, that there is a solution, but the solution requires us to be attacked. The, the solution com- requires a complete obliteration of the opposition so that someone can institute a huge level of governmental spending, and that may not be in the political cards. In the absence of that, what are the options? So it's a very interesting situation. Okay, so we talked about that. Anybody else have any other thoughts that they came up with out of the Doomsday Book? Yeah. It's kind of what I wrote about, but I'll say um, Basically, I, I thought there was a theme of a lot of... Uh, basically a sacrifice and risk for the sole purpose of academic progress. Like, the amount of risk that uh, the protagonist goes through just so that she can study her area of interest is amazing. Like, she'll literally entrust her life to this technician to go back in time. And even the place where she originally wanted to go had quite a few inherent dangers in it anyway, like, let alone the flaws the technician had. But, um... I thought it paralleled a lot of like real life scientific experiments that have happened. Like a few years ago, we had the Large Hadron Collider, and there were a lot of like concerns with that. Like it was going to be the end of the world, or people going to die. But they really wanted to know these um, whatever. Like there was a lot of different physics problems that could have been solved with that, so they went ahead with it despite the dangers. And um, I found a uh, this new project that NASA is uh, proposing. They want to send a manned mission to Mars relatively soon, actually. Like, they just started uh, talking about it now. And um, the idea, though, is that the people who go there would not be able to return, so they're sacrificing people to go on this mission just for the pure purpose of academic progress and scientific progress. And um, I, don't know, I thought that was a pretty interesting thing there. The interesting aspect of risk. Kevin was a very unusual person. She was young. She was about. She was very young, and um, she wanted to go in the university and take risks and actually study the Middle Ages. That level of risk. That's a really good point. I'm really glad you raised that. Risk is something we're very averse to in academia. Very often, you see graduate students being cautioned not to take risks. If you look at dissertations that come out of graduate students, very commonly they're, oh, some people like to call them pothole fillers rather than highway pavers, meaning rather than make a new highway to someplace else, they're filling in little potholes in highways that have already been established. When you have major people taking major chances, they're often at great risk. For example, I'll give you a cold fusion example. Cold fusion was widely ridiculed. I think I've mentioned this before, but it was widely ridiculed when the Brigham Young professors originally came up with the idea. They basically got drummed out of the country because of the the ridicule that went on it. Yet the theory of cold fusion has developed over the years, and academics still are rarely willing to talk about it openly but they're uh, fiercely interested in it 
intellectually. And I told you earlier about, if I remind you about John Russell, the physicist who used to work at Georgia Tech in the nuclear engineering, who was the inventor of uh, seeds with those little rice-shaped pellets that are used for treating prostate cancer and some other chemical, some other cancers. He came up with, in the annals of uh, nuclear energy, he came up with the first article that explained the theory for how cold fusion or low-energy nuclear reactions, LENR, actually works. And he was giving a presentation down at Georgia Tech, and the the person who, it was a standing room only presentation, he was introduced by someone who said, uh, all the graduate students in the front row, you're going to be interested in this, fascinating stuff, you're going to want to do it and everything, I give you the following advice. Listen to it, absorb it, understand what a great thinker can actually think about. This is pioneering stuff right off the edge of greatness. But don't dare think about trying this in graduate school or you won't be able to get a job. You'll be finished. We won't be able to place you. Uh, you won't be able to get published. <laughs> so on like that. Do this only after you get tenure. Risk-averse stuff. It's very common. Risk-averse stuff. So graduate students typically have incredibly boring dissertations. I'll give you another example uh, with uh, Hugh Everett, the physicist who, as a graduate student, came up with an idea to explain the so-called two-slit experiment in physics where you have one photon at a time entering a quantum system that's set up, an experiment, and that that photon goes through one of two small slits that are available, and then it produces a dot on a photographic detection surface, like a photographic plate at the end of the system. Well, okay, you sent one photon into the system, it got through one of the two slots and made a dot. And then you send another photon in, one at a time, one after the other. And each one's making dots. But then when you look at the pattern on the photographic detection surface, Afterwards, after you've sent many, many, many photons through, each one at a time, you'll see that they line up in bands. And what that basically means is that when the photon was going through the slit, one slit, there were two slits that had to choose which slit it was going to go through. Afterwards, after it got through the slit, it was being interfered with so that waves, if you have a the uh, peak of a wave, the crest of a wave, hitting the trough of another wave, they cancel each other out. So in those situations, you'll get no dot. But if you get a wave that has a peak hitting another wave that has a peak, two crests hitting together, they accent each other. In those situations, the you will get a dot. So the photons were canceling each other out, and then in some situations, yet they were not canceling each other out in another, producing a banded pattern. Well, okay, but like how could they be interfering with each other? You're only sending through one at a time. With what is the photon interfering? There's only ones in the system at the time. So that's been one of the great mysteries, still to this day, of quantum mechanics, to explain the two-slit experiment. Well, Hugh Everett came up with an idea saying, well, there might be, since the photons don't actually register, don't actually exist in the, as real things until they hit the photographic plate. They only exist in some type of probabilistic state until they hit the photographic plate. Wherever they are, must be another dimensional aspect to them. They must be in some type of other worlds or other universe type situation. 
and they don't sort of solidify into ours until they hit these photographic plates. So in those other realms, they must be interfering with each other. So there may be one that hits the photographic plate, but before it hit the photographic plate, it was in sort of a probabilistic state that spanned other dimensions, other realms, and there it was being interfered with. And then when it solidified or registered in our dimensions, in our understanding, in our universe, there was only one left. Well, actually, that turned out to be a very interesting theory. It was widely ridiculed, and he ended up leaving physics and going into the corporate world because it was, it was uh, so... It was so badly ridiculed. But the the idea is, it, it's turning out now that physicists are actually thinking he he might have... Actually, a lot of people are thinking he might have got it right. In fact, that might be exactly what was going on. They still haven't come up with another alternative explanation that explains the two-slit experiment. The idea is not whether the physicists were right or wrong. Do you see the risk aversion issue? When you come up with new theories that are bold, that are daring... Those are risk averse. But what did Kevin do at the very young age? She said, I'm going to the Middle Ages. I want to go to the Middle Ages. I want to take those risks. And what was the response of her faculty to convince her not to do that? It was only her absolute determination that made her go that way. But that's the uh, that's the exception, not the rule. I was actually thinking that... Uh, <coughs> I'm sorry. Saying that humans are naturally inclined to not only take those risks but make definite sacrifices when it comes to academic progress that they're really passionate about. Like um, those two examples I gave before, they not only took the risks, of, but they also sacrificed huge, like ridiculous amounts of money that, frankly, especially with NASA because they're backed by the U.S. government, could have been put to humanitarian use. So saying like, whether it's good or bad really depends on how uh, well highly you value academic progress there, but to say that they're very often willing to sacrifice and risk purely for that, like well over other values. I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. It's interesting. The issue of risk is huge. It's huge dimensionally as you just described, but also uh, in almost any setting that, that you come across. One of the things that I would caution you about in your own work is for those of you who do come up with interesting ideas, I understand that there are ways to manage risk. So it's not that you have to squelch your ideas permanently. Kevin was a very unusual case in the Doomsday Book because with literally no security behind her, she went and took these great risks. So in an academic realm, there are situations where people can postpone taking great risks till after they get tenure but they have to keep it in mind and they have to keep it alive that they want to do these. They basically have to have double lives until they have some type of risk-averse strategy to keep it to keep it okay. There are many cases where extraordinarily brilliant academics came out with these brilliant theories before they had some type of protection with tenure. And it just, they, they, they went away. They disappeared. They couldn't survive the... Uh, the academic the academic realm. Same thing happens with uh, other areas. Actually, in teaching, high school teaching, you'll find this often happens. There are exceptionally many examples of a teacher being brilliant and actually getting great results, great results among his or her students and being accused of, uh, you know, cheating or some other type of problem by other people in the system, other colleagues, other people in the in the departments, 
basically because they said they can't be getting these results because you know, you know other people aren't getting these results. Something must be wrong. And then investigations start up and the people end up being drummed out of the school system. This is quite common in high school settings. And administrations are notoriously incompetent for dealing with such situations. People that have these problems typically run into them before tenure in high schools, and then they they uh, they run up and they they get they run into these risks. So uh, you find these types of risks almost anywhere you go, and it's managing these risks that is the big challenge in life. It's not live a life with no risks, because then you don't have any fun. But live a life and manage the risks is really the advice. I wish they actually taught that as a regular basis, how to manage risk in your life. The only way you're taught growing up, all through high school experience and then college and graduate school, the current paradigm for how to teach managing a risk is to avoid risk. That produces a dumbing down of society that's just horrific, and that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're really facing. But Kevin's is a good example, and that was a very good point you raised. Okay, one more before we go into uh, the next book. What a, what is another person? You go ahead. Uh, I wrote in my essay about the fact that before Kevin was sent off, everybody was kind of confident and sure that they had thought of everything and they were really well prepared, and then they sent her off and found out that they really weren't as prepared as they thought they were. And so I thought that kind of represented the idea that when you're about to achieve something great, like being the first person to send somebody to the Middle Ages, you tend to get excited and maybe even a little bit overconfident, and then that's when you make your mistake. Interesting. That has not been brought up yet. So how would you relate that to politics and society? I related it to... Well, recently uh, there was a McDonald's manager who attached to his employees' paychecks a letter telling them that they should vote for Republican candidates if they want to see raises next year uh, because he feels that the Republicans have the best strategy to fix the economy. And he kind of said that, you know, as the midterm elections were coming up and the Republicans were doing better and better and they were about to win, you know, he just got really excited and wanted to yeah. support them and then ended up, you know, stomping all over. I think he even broke some laws and he disrespected his employees and he's receiving a lot of ridicule for it. You know, you're bringing up the other side of risk. I'm really glad you raised this issue. You're bringing up the other side of risk. The, the person who did it... Uh, attaching that political note to their McDonald's paychecks, uh, you normally would say was just stupid. They did a stupid thing. So now you're bringing up the other side of risk. Risk doesn't mean be stupid about things and um, take crazy chances and, uh, you know, and screw up. Risk makes sense in the context of wisdom. And that doesn't mean just strictly formal education. That means intelligence combined with knowledge, combined with experience. <coughs> that wisdom is actually a crucial element of managing risk. So it's not that you don't take risks, but you take them intelligently. Like For example, I'm in the motorcycle business. I'm a motorcycle 
um, enthusiast. I ride motorcycles. I love, ride motor, love riding motorcycles. I, I, riding a car to me is a deadly experience. I just can't stand it. But riding a motorcycle is a happy experience for me. Yet when I ride a motorcycle, um, I ride full gear and I obey the rules. I take advanced courses in motorcycle mo- motorcycle riding. Um, it can be risky, but so can anything that you do in life can be risky. But it's managing the risks. So I combine motorcycle riding with all the appropriate stuff that you're supposed to do for managing the risk. On the other hand, I see people riding motorcycles all the time that have t-shirts on, tennis shoes, shorts, essentially no protective gear, except a helmet, and that's only because it's required by law. And in other places where they don't have that required by law, I see them riding even without helmets. But I see them riding without gloves and everything. And I see them doing crazy things. I saw on an internet, I saw on, on a YouTube thing, I saw somebody doing a stunt without any protective whatsoever, any gear, any protective gear whatsoever, they had the motorcycle going down the street, they let go of the handlebars and stood up on the seat. Now, if you're a stunt rider and a motorcyclist, you know, you can do that. But he, he stood up on the motorcycle, literally standing up. Nothing was guiding the motorcycle at all. He apparently had never done this. Of course, he fell off the motorcycle with no gear, goes tumbling around, um, and the motorcycle goes running off in his own direction. Well, that was just stupid. It was a lack of wisdom, a lack of understanding. The guy had taken no courses, no protective gear, nothing. Uh, if you're going to do that type of stunt, and there are motorcyclists who can do that type of stunt, you take a course in how to do that. The very first thing they'll do is gear you up so you're fully protected, show you how to do it, give you examples, give you courses about it, you know, show us how it's done, and you basically learn how to do it. So what you're talking about now is making taking chances in the absence of risk, in the absence of wisdom, in the absence of understanding, in the absence of how to manage those risks. And that's crucial. That was actually a very good example. I'm glad you raised that. I'm, I'm glad you raised that, uh, that issue. What were some of the protections that Kevin had built into herself when she went back in time? What's that? The language chip. Uh, language chip. The language chip. That was a good thing, because when she had gone back in time, she already knew how to speak Latin, and also she knew how to speak the language of that time period. And what happened? She, what's that? She put in a different time period. So they missed it by a few years, and the language, the dialect, was different. And she found herself in a situation where she couldn't communicate, except to a priest that knew a minimal amount of, language, uh, of Latin. But they had a language chip in there that could adapt and she had a language chip inserted in her brain so that she could have that adapt, and in a sh- short amount of time she could start to talk. That was some of the insurance that is built in. So taking the risks with some stuff that you you back it up. Camping is also a good thing. When you go camping in the Rocky Mountains, you can do it two ways. You can just say, I'm going to go up into that mountain and camp, <laughs> and having never had a course in how to camp or not knowing how to do protective gear, and then run into hypothermia, run into thunderstorms, run into problems of no water, uh, and run into all types of issues, and then get lost and chased by a bear. <laughs> and then have to run across a stream that's, uh, after a rainstorm, that's way too, way too, uh, way too uh, uh, full, 
for you to get across. So you go across a log that happens to be wet and slippery and slide off and go into... I mean, one disaster after the next. Now, that's risking going out uh, and camping when you do that. But on the other hand, you could also be trained about how to do that and how to how to survive in those types of environments and then go up to that same mountain and have a great time and not have all of those things happen to you. So... I actually just said that example as sort of tongue-in-cheek. I had sort of a moderate amount of experience doing a very, doing that exact thing, going up into the Rocky Mountains, and a moderate amount of training when I was young, your age. And indeed, I ran into most of those things. So we got caught in a, I went up to a place, and I was at the top of the Rocky Mountains, and uh, I got it there, and I was able to get myself and my partner back. But... Um, the water we thought would be drinkable was totally brackish. And for fortunately, I had a filter straw type situation, so we were able to survive until the morning, sipping on water drop at a time. It was okay. You could drink anything with that thing. And then, in the meantime, overnight it had rained, and the, you know we were cut off from any place we could get to. So we were trying to figure out how to get across. And I said, well, I found a log, but the log was slippery, and I had a backpack on and everything. But I said, this will work. You stay here and I'll show you how it works. So I started to walk across the, the, the river on this log. Of course, I slipped and fell into the rock river rapidly. I don't know why I survived. Some angel was protecting me. I managed to catch on a branch going down the river and pull myself out. Um, and then we pulled out gear out of my... out of my. Uh, fortunately, I had some dry gear and plastic bags in my backpack, so I was able to... So it was sort of a combination of risk-averse strategies combined with ignorance that somehow I got through. And then we soon after that, uh, thinking that we were going to die for sure because there was no way to get across the stream, we came across someone who knew what they were doing. And he was very confident out there alone, but he knew exactly, you could tell, he had that, he had that knowledge and experience and the training. And we just looked up and he said, how are you going to escape? And he said, oh, we're going to cross the river. I said, but how can you cross the river? We just I just got drenched and my partner's not going to go follow me anymore. So what do we... And he said, well, you don't cross the river. Here, you go upstream until the river is not such a big river anymore. I mean, the farther you go up, the less water there is in the river and eventually you just cross it. And we said, we can do that. And so what, could, do you mind if we follow you? And sure enough, he walked and within half a mile, the river was very reasonable. We just jumped over some rocks and there we were on the other side. So you see... Uh, risk combined with sort of wisdom combined with education uh, goes a long way in, in terms of those things. Um, so your example was very interesting, a person doing risk while having no information at all. So there's two types of risks. There's idiot risk and there's wise risk. You want to be able to take risks in your life, but you want to be able to do it in a wise way, make, make all the preparations you can uh, and that's basically what Kevin did in her thing. All right, one last one, and that's it. Go ahead. Who has one last different take on it? Josh, uh, you have one? We, since we've been talking about risk, which is very individualistic, and we come from an individualistic society, one thing I wrote about from the Doomsday Book is that uh, we, as a society, have our priorities entirely backwards um, because we're such an individualistic society, and we've been stuck in this individualistic routine for so long we let this petty entrenchment in our day-to-day -day affairs overrule when crises come. And so, like, in the futuristic Oxford, when this plague or when this epidemic gets widespread, the 
archaeologist is so concerned with her work that she's wondering when the quarantine's over so that people can come help her on the dig. We're so wrapped up in our day-to-day affairs that when a crisis comes, we don't know how to adapt. And we've become so rigid in our personal give me liberty or give me death and the American ideal where any individual can rise to the top that we've lost sight of our place in the collective society. You know, that's a very interesting point. And, and you see that happening not just in the, in the modern part of the book, but also in the 1300s, the ancient part of the book. People were caught up in their own thing. They had to have their Christmas celebration, regardless of the, of, of the rules that were given to them in order to avoid the plague. And so they went and they got people in, and sure enough, the people brought the plague with them, and everybody ended up dying. Um, people involved in their own stuff. You know, that's a good example. To, to sort of end this so we can move on, um, I'd like to raise one thing. I was wondering if anyone would, would, would raise this. The issue of passing the buck, which is what we were talking about earlier, coming up with an excuse for not doing something that would be reasonable. Right now we have a situation in which a couple things are happening. One is where President Obama, for example, is facing a potential rout in today's election, a complete evacuation of the Democratic majorities, possibly, in the House and the Senate. We'll have to wait till tomorrow to see if that's actually the situation, but that's what the, that's what's facing. And you don't seem to have any discussions in White House staff, at least nothing that's hitting the political commentators, of the White House taking responsibility for that. Basically, they're saying, we had to make some tough choices, this is what had to happen, and people don't understand. But you don't get comments coming out of the Obama White House saying, well, we... We focused on what we had to do, but we didn't explain it very well to people. You don't get any type of self-criticism about it. All you get is uh, saying that the people were sort of dumb, so they didn't explain it. And I was thinking about this with regard to the quarantine issue that the book so heavily goes into. If there should be a terrorist attack in the United States and then there would be a lockdown, a biological terrorist attack, for example, and there'd be a lockdown, essentially a national uh, martial law with a national guard in the street. You couldn't go to Kroger's, you'd be locked down in your houses, things like that. One of the things that would be said afterwards is, why didn't you prepare the populace for this? Why didn't you explain to them what the procedures would be? If all the laws were passed in order to allow something like this to occur over the last decade, all the laws were passed, all the regulations were put into place. Why didn't you educate people into being able to adapt so that they were just crisis-struck when it actually did happen? And undoubtedly what the result would be is, oh, people wouldn't have understood it. People wouldn't have gotten it. People would not have been able to figure it out. They would have panicked. They would have thought we're trying to have some type of authoritarian control. You see the idea of passing the buck. And that, in fact, could very well happen if there was any type of a terrorist attack that would cause a a lockdown. So what you see in the current Obama situation is sort of coming out of the Obama White House, sort of a lack of 
acknowledgement that they may be responsible for much of what they of what's happening and also something that could happen in the future where people would be reacting to essentially national a martial law and when the government has said, well, why didn't you prepare the people for it? Sort of an excuse how they wouldn't have they wouldn't have figured it out. They wouldn't have understood it, blaming it on somebody else. Those type of rationale is probably extremely common among government and military issues. Uh, not explaining things to people because saying they would have misunderstood it. In terms of the in terms of the novel, that quarantine issue was sort of was sort of huge. It caught everybody by surprise. And part of that may deal with what Josh was just saying, which is people are involved in their own lives, and if you explain hypothetical information for them to them, they're not going to get it anyway, so why should I try? Whatever the reasoning may actually be, it is nonetheless a fundamental aspect of our lives. We, we have a situation that's very much like that, and it occurs in... in, in in so many different dimensions that, uh, of our daily lives. Okay, well, we've sort of wrapped up with Connie Willis's The Doomsday Book, so we can go on to the next book. But I think we've covered a, a, a lot of different aspects of society. The reason I really wanted to focus on Connie Willis's Doomsday Book are reasons that were brought up in class, which were human frailties in dealing with crises. She goes into a science fiction realm where she goes into the past and then she goes in and she comes back to the future. And in both settings, you have very similar problems. It's not so much that there is a single one thing that you can identify as causing these problems, but there's a fundamental aspect of humanity, of the human personality, that leads to these problems. And, uh, and, and she sort of pinpoints that and very, very interestingly, most of you got a, a good understanding of, of that element. Okay, great. Connie Willis's book, The Doomsday Book.